Hello and welcome all to today's discussion on how the war in Ukraine will impact China's engagement in Eastern Europe. My name is James Gethin Evans. Uh, I'm the convener along with Dr. Nargis Casanova of today's lecture, uh, which is part of a series on China's Belt Road Initiative sponsored by the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies and the Fairbank Center for Chinese Studies here at Harvard University. Uh, we're speaking to you today uh, during a somber time for Europe. So today's event is mindful of the violence and destruction of Russia's invasion against Ukraine. Uh, but today we will focus on the potential longer term impacts of the war. China has developed extensive political and economic ties with Eastern Europe over the past few decades, not to mention that the region is incredibly important as a land bridge between China and Europe for China's Belt Road Initiative. The closing of borders and the hardening of divisions between Russia and the West will undoubtedly pose challenges to China's global geopolitical ambitions. Today's panelists will present their views on how the dramatic developments in Ukraine will alter China's presence in Eastern Europe. Um, we are joined today by four fantastic panelists. Um, first, Jing Hanzong is Professor of China and International Studies at Lancaster University in the UK, where he researches Chinese politics and international relations. Uh, he's most recently the author of Artificial Intelligence with Chinese Characteristics, National Strategy, Security and Authoritarian Governance, um, which I believe you currently have in your hand. Yes, it's just arrived, um, as well as other books on Chinese foreign policy, ideology in Chinese politics and China-EU relations. Jeremy Garlick is director of the Mazarek Center for International Studies and associate professor of international relations and China studies at Prague University of Economics and Business. His research focuses on the Belt Road Initiative, China's relations with Central and Eastern Europe, China-Middle East relations, and the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. Uh, most recently, he is the author of Advantage China, Agent of Change in an Era of Global Disruption, which uh, is forthcoming next year. So maybe next year when we have you back, then you can show us the, the book. Um, Una Alexandra Borzino Chernikova is head of China Studies at uh, Riga Stradens University and head of the Asia program at the Latvian Institute of International Affairs. She regularly publishes on PRC political discourse, contemporary Chinese ideology, EU-China relations, as well as the Belt Road Initiative and other transcontinental interconnectivity initiatives. Uh, and I'm pleased to say that she's also the author of a new book called Perfect Imbalance, China and Russia, which I believe is now uh, in your possession. <laughs> Congratulations again. <laughs> Um, our final speaker is Arseny Savitsky, who's the co-founder and director of the Minsk-based Center for Strategic and Foreign Policy Studies. Um, he's also an expert on Belarusian security and foreign policy, and he focuses on international and regional security, strategic affairs, and Russia and Eurasia. He is currently completing his doctoral research uh, at the Belarusian National Academy of Science, uh, where he also works as a research fellow at the Center for the Study of Globalization, Integration and Sociocultural Cooperation. So to start off our discussion, I would like to invite Professor Zhang uh, to talk about how he thinks the war will impact the interests of China's domestic actors in Eastern Europe. Thanks. Uh, thanks, James, and thanks for having me at this event. Um, I think I'd like to uh, mainly focusing on 
why China is actually having its current position on this war and the domestic debate within China uh, about this war. And as we all know that according to Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi, uh, China's official position is that China advocates respecting and safeguarding the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine. At the same time, China thinks that Russia's legitimate security demands should be taken seriously and properly addressed. And this middle point, Chinese position, has often been interpreted by many as a strategic ambiguity in which Chinese leadership are looking for long-term, direct, and indirect opportunity from uh, this crisis in order to maximize Chinese national interests. But what I have seen here is probably what I would call non-strategic ambiguity or probably passive ambiguity. Um, What I have seen here really at the strategic level, there is lack of consensus within the Chinese leadership about about uh, this war. And I think uh, Chinese understanding of this war and its potential consequences and implication for Europe, Russia, China, and the world uh, are yet to be developed. And this is um, uh, uh, very unique, not unique in China. I think probably for all countries, we all need to be, have a little bit more understanding of where this is going and its potential implication. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't forget that within China, the Chinese leadership are very much occupied with much more important and pressing domestic issues such as the new national uh, wide wave of COVID in Shanghai, recently in Beijing, and then the forthcoming 20th Party Congress, which is a lot occupy a lot of attention of the Chinese leadership. Um, at the same time, at the sub-national level, what I have seen here is many Chinese complaints and sub-national actors are actually affected by this war. They are much more economically motivated rather than geopolitically motivated. And usually we uh, analyze them or understand them under the umbrella of Chinese overseas national interests. But the key point here is those actors have very different agenda and very different interests and would like to say very different Chinese position on these wars. So collectively, what I'm seeing here is an ongoing debate within Chinese domestic leadership, and different actors are trying to influence about Chinese position on this war, and this needs to a more relatively passive Chinese position. And why, why China and why China is having this position at the moment, or what are the debates? And we all know that, indeed, China uh, had considerable investment and trade in Ukraine, and China is Ukraine's largest trading partner. And if you go deeper to examine this bilateral relation between Ukraine and China, and if you compare China-Russia relation as a strategic ally, uh, alliance without limits, I would call China-Ukraine relation is some sort of you know semi-strategic partnership. And because Ukraine is so important to China, geographically speaking, it uh, lies in a very important uh, place, which is key to China's transport to Europe by both land and air. And not surprisingly, Ukraine is China's uh, key BRI, Bell and Road Initiative partner and country in Europe. And Ukraine-China trade goes beyond agriculture. Uh, sometimes they have some even military collaboration. China is one of the biggest overseas buyer of Ukraine weapons. And think about where China got its first aircraft carrier from, from Ukraine. So it is a foreign policy challenge for China. And uh, what we have seen here is China is being forced to choose uh, between a strategic ally, which is Russia, and a semi-strategic partner, Ukraine. And as you can imagine, this is going to be a very difficult choice. This is why I do not think um, what China is doing now is a strategic ambiguity. Um, I think it's ambiguous, but not very strategic.
uh, just simply lack of options and lack of consensus and different Chinese actors have different agenda on this matter. And within China, uh, you can already see that uh, in social media, for example, um, the, the opinion is also divided as well. Many are buying into the Russian narrative of how this war is triggered by NATO and the United States. Um, but this is not a, a new Chinese perception or influence by Russia. China has always had this narrative of how uh, NATO expansion is based on a Cold War mentality. So this is not new development. But at the same time, there are a few, mostly a liberal uh, Chinese influencer, are talking about the impact of this war on liberal international order. They're taking the moral high ground of accusing Russia's wrongdoing um, and Chinese foreign policy on protecting national sovereignty, which we have just talked about. And some of them are even laughing at Russia's incapa- uh, capacity to make any progress in this war. So the public opinion is divided. And within the political system, it's uh, the debate is very hot as well. On the one side, you got some people argue that, you know, Russia is China's one of very few allies. And Russia is what Russia is doing. They helping Beijing uh, to distract Washington from its pressure on China. So um, China shouldn't be really helping the U.S. to do any sanction because what the U.S. is asking is, can China help me to fight Russia, your friends Russia, so we can concentrate on fighting you later. Too many people uh, within the uh, Chinese strategic analysis it does not make sense. However, on the other side, uh, many are wounding the consequences of getting too close with Russia or at least appear to get close with Russia. They were saying that China will be dragged by Russia into this anti-Western agenda is going to be have severe consequences for China's economic development, for China's relation with the West. And take EU-China relation as an example. China's export to EU and UK is almost 10 times more than it's to Russia. So economically speaking, Russia is not really worthy for China to give up the Europe. And let alone, there will be consequences of, of Western sanctions on China, Chinese complaints. So a lot of Chinese transnational state-owned enterprise, Chinese companies are not very comfortable with the idea of China getting too close with, with Moscow uh, because uh, it's going to affect their operation overseas and create a lot of problems for them. And you can see that both sides have a point and there's no better way to, um, you know, um, a better solution than keep this ambiguous position. At the same time, domestic issue coming, occupying the leadership's attention, uh, especially about the COVID. So this is why I think what China is doing now is uh, non-strategic ambiguous, non-strategic ambiguous position or probably uh, some passive Chinese position. Uh, I'm going to stop here and I understand my other panelists will focus on and will talk about how this war has been affecting China's engagement in Europe. Thank, thank you. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Jinhan. Um, well, I, I was wondering, uh, what's the... Um, so you, well, Ukraine, along with Eastern Europe, was seen as a bridge, right, between Eurasia and Europe, and China was trying to connect sort of this uh, mega continent. Uh, and now, either way, the divisions will be, you know, divisions are rising, right? Uh, is it, you think, the end of this kind of big aspiration of China to connect the, the, um, um, this mega continent or, or not? Is it, uh, what, what's, what's the take? I, I understand there is a lot of kind of, a lot of discussions and uh, uh, ambiguity, but in a nutshell. Right. I think, I think probably the takeaway here is uh, 
there's no consensus in China of uh, what kind of better position China can keep or what China should be doing. And China still yet to understand the consequences. And obviously, if you really talk about the connectivity, the war has been seriously affecting China's connectivity. And some people are saying that now, imagining uh, in the future, if Russia is now being sanctioned and if China want to have transport to go to Europe through Russia territory, um, how 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 is that possible or uh, how this is not going to be affected and the war per se in ukraine has been seriously affecting chinese investment and chinese infrastructure uh, projects there things like that so um i think the takeaway here is really uh, chinese strategic analysts are developing more understanding of this war and there is no clear understanding or consensus on its potential implication Thank, thank you very much. Um, uh, Jeremy, can we go to you? What's your take on the situation? Um, how does the war impact China's engagement in Eastern Europe, BRI, connectivity, all these things? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm going to maybe take a, maybe, I don't think it's a controversial position. It's certainly not controversial here in the Czech Republic, but I'm going to say from the start that the Ukraine war is the nail in the coffin of uh, China CEE cooperation. And I'm I'm going to focus on China CEE cooperation, China's Central Eastern and, U- uh, and Eastern Europe co- cooperation, um, which just to explain in cases people <clears throat> that are not so aware of this, I think people in Europe are aware of it, but maybe people in, in North America are not so aware of it. Uh, I'm going to talk about the 16 plus one, which later became the 17 plus one, because this was a kind of turning point or supposed to be a turning point in China CEE relations. So in 2011 to 2012, uh, China and Poland got together and launched the, the so-called 16 plus one cooperation between China and CE countries. Uh, so there were 16 CE countries included. 11 of them were EU members. Five of them were not EU members, right? And later on, uh, Greece was added to make it 17 plus one. So I think this was kind of the warming up of, of China CE relations and and. We were all hopeful that it was going to go well, but I'm going to explain now why I think it's uh, failed. And I have to go back a little bit into the history. I'm not going to talk too long about the history, just a little bit back into that, because I think there are four reasons why China CE cooperation was already failing and why this is just the nail in the coffin. This is kind of the end of it, and it's going to need a complete reset, right? And I mean, I think that from the Chinese side, they're going to need to understand that it needs a complete reset. I mean, I was visited last week by a scholar from Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, and I, I basically spent an hour and a half explaining to him why it's not going well, right? And there seems to be this impression in China up to now that it's been going really well, and it's all going fantastically. And from, I can tell you from the Czech perspective or from the CE perspective, this is a completely different story that it's not going well. So I'm going to give you four reasons why it was already failing, right? So the first one is, from the history, going back into the, the history of it, the Cold War history, uh, China's often been recently in the last 10 years talking about traditional friendship between with Central and Eastern Europe. But if you go back to the Cold War, there really wasn't, although those these states were all communist states, there really wasn't a, a close connection between China with China because of the Soviet influence and the Sino-Soviet split in the late 1950s and 1960s. There was never a close relationship during the Cold War. They're all communist states. And when I was growing up, we all thought, you know, communist states, they're all on the same side, but there really was no close relationship. And then when the Cold War ended in the 1990s, obviously all the 
the, the newly, you know, democratic countries of Central and Eastern Europe wanted to, you know, shift more to the West, right? They wanted to join the EU. They wanted to join NATO. For example, Czech Republic, where I am now, you know, hurried to join NATO and the EU. And that was just true of many of the countries. And so 1990s and into the 2000s, there was no focus on China. There's almost, if you look at the literature, there's almost no literature even on China CE cooperation because there wasn't any, right? Uh, so many of these countries became EU members. <clears throat> and then the, the, the 16 plus one came along, right? 2011, 2012, it was launched. This, this new mechanism for cooperation between China, Central and Eastern European countries. So I want to say that the, the history of it is there was not close cooperation. And then suddenly this, there was no roots for it, right? There was no tradition. There was no foundation for it. So it was weak, you know, from the beginning. That's my first point. Second point is that the platform, the 16 plus one platform, uh, although, you know, I've, again, I've talked to Chinese scholars and they say, well, it was launched with Poland and this kind of thing. But actually, it's a typical Chinese uh, cooperation platform with the N plus one formula. It resembles the you know, China Arab States Cooperation Forum or the Forum for China Africa Cooperation or one of those. It's a very similar kind of platform to those. And what I want to say is that one of the reasons why the second reason here why it doesn't work is because it's it's an attempt to launch a cooperation with Chinese characteristics rather than coming out of the, the 16 countries of Central and Eastern Europe themselves. It does not emerge from the local situation, right? So what the, what the from the Chinese side, I think they've got wrong is that they haven't understood that this is not a block of countries. You can't really expect these countries to be integrated as a block and they've tried to impose a Chinese platform on the country. So for example, you know, Czech Republic and Hungary, neighbors, but they really are not closely connected. Hungarian is a completely different language to Czech. They're incomprehen mutually incomprehensible. They have different traditions and culture it's really not an integrated region. So the Chinese attempt to, you know, introduce Chinese norms and practices into this region has not taken enough account of the local setting and it's not taken root for that reason. So that's kind of my second point I want to make. The third point and getting more serious is after about, you know, so the early years, 2012 up to about 2016 or 2017, it seemed to be going pretty well. There was a lot of meet, there were annual meetings and, there seemed to be a lot of cooperation at the leadership level, but where it got where it's broken down here is the, the investment that that China promised to Central and Eastern Europe. There was talk of a ten billion, you know, ten billion dollar credit line. A lot of investments here in the Czech Republic, and the investment program has been extremely underwhelming. There's been far more investment capital going into Western Europe. The amount of capital going into Central and Eastern Europe has really been insignificant. There's not been uh, a lot of uh, activity. You know, for example, in the Czech Republic, uh, Chinese company CEFC bought a, a, a football club and a brewery and a media, media company, but there wasn't any greenfield investment, no new jobs created. So people here were very disappointed with the uh, promised investment. So I think this is another reason why it was already failing by about 2017, 2018. And then the fourth point I want to make is the generally poor image of China, which has just been declining, right? I mean, poor image of China caused 
And this is a very important issue to people here in Central and Eastern Europe. It's very important to Czechs. We see also it's important to Lithuanians. Lithuania withdrew from the 17 plus one last year. Very important to a lot of people here, the image of China, the, the, the Xinjiang question, the Hong Kong question, Tibet, Taiwan, all of these kind of questions have caused a, a major decline in China's image. Or it, was, it was not so strong in the first place and it's been declining. And then, then we had COVID coming along, which has just damaged the image further. So all of these things, you know, people people here, I would say, generally have have created a, a, a very poor image of China, which has not helped to to foster this cooperation. Last year, 2021, we had the 17 plus one summit, which was for the first time led by Xi Jinping, and several Central and Eastern European countries decided not to send their leaders to that summit. It was an online virtual summit, but several countries decided not to send their leaders which was a real you know, snub, I think, to Xi Jinping, a real indication of how the platform is failing. And we've seen Lithuania you know, withdraw from the platform. So just coming to the Ukraine war, I think what's happened now is that people had already formed a, a poor impression of China's uh, cooperation with China, seeing it as an attempt to divide Europe, to create a new bloc in Central and Eastern Europe, dividing the EU. A lot of negative impressions of China. And the Ukraine war is now just exacerbating this because, um, you know, there is uni almost universal condemnation of Russia here, right? In Central and Eastern Europe, there's a, in the Czech Republic, there's a strong affinity with Ukraine. There was a, a strong feeling that Ukrainians, you know, could be us. They remember the Russian tanks rolling into Prague in 1968. There's a very strong historical memory of this. It's a very strong identification with Ukraine, very strong condemnation of Russia. And China, by not condemning Russia and by appearing to, you know, I've heard what, listen to what Jinghan said about not non-committal, but by appearing to side with Russia and by publishing editorials in Global Times, which are anti-NATO, anti-US, this is, this is, uh, destroying the last pieces of China's image in, in Central and Eastern Europe. And it, it's just, uh, I don't think there's any way back without a complete reset. I think it's it's a very uh, poor outcome now for China CEE cooperation. So I, I'll just stop there and uh, let, we can go on. <clears throat> Um, thank, thank you very much. Uh, well, it seems you're very critical of the uh, 16, not 17, plus, uh, plus one uh, mechanism. But, but it seems that, that in these multilateral platforms work better in other regions, for, like the FOCAC, for example, the, the, the China-Africa Forum. Uh, it doesn't have the same, uh, the same problems going well uh, in Central Asia as well, SEO and you know, also five plus one mechanism is also uh, working um, quite nicely uh, can it be uh, actually uh, the case that in central eastern europe you it doesn't work because there are other blocks there is the european union uh, there is nato of course so which creates uh, creates these uh, tensions so it's sort of a special region because it is europe yeah I, I, exactly i think that's right you know it, it is a special region but as, as i was trying to point out it's not really a region you know, I mean, it's it's a it's it's not a region in that it's not a unified region, Central and Eastern Europe. I, I think China's tried to impose this 
region, sense of it being a region. I mean, of course, we talk about Central and Eastern Europe, but there's even there, there's, there's you know, while I'm talking, you know, you, you've got in the title of this Eastern Europe, and I'm talking about Central and Eastern Europe. You know, for example, Czech people, they don't see themselves as Eastern Europeans. They see themselves as Central Europeans, right? They identify more with Austria. They want to be part of the West. They don't identify themselves with with Eastern Europe, it, it's it, it's in fact it's quite offensive to Czech people. They keep they keep uh, you know when I first came here, I was reminded many times we are not Eastern Europe, we are Central Europe. You know, so it's not a it's not a very integrated region. I mean, I think it's a region where you have various sub regions: Central Europe, Baltic states, Balkan states. You know, there, there's various sub regions within it, and it's not a unified region. So it's it's. Uh, I think for this reason, I think, in my opinion, the Chinese have really uh, not understood the region well. And, and as you say, there's the question of the EU as well. It's a question of EU integration, which, you know, the 16 plus one appears to be at cross purposes with that. Well, there is a lot of misunderstanding of regions, of countries, clearly, right? So that's why we are in the uh, in the situation we are in today. Oh, Una, can we can we go to you? What's what's your take? Did it work ever? You know, and what's what's happening now? And what can happen? Yes, thank you, Nargis. And I just want to add that, yes, indeed, China has a very creative approach toward what is a region, what isn't a region. It's kind of a region shaping. I think we see that also in Central Asia, whether you add Afghanistan or no, or not, you know, these these kinds of things. And, and I think 16 plus one was also a very interesting example of region shaping, basically, because before that, uh, none of us actually thought that we had much in common in terms of history, language, uh, uh political system with, for example, Albania, but now I have Albanian colleagues that I work with. And so, yeah, <laughs> but actually um, I wish I had uh, other points to, you know, uh, another, another lens, another prism to add to uh, Jeremy's excellent points, but actually I'm just going to repeat a lot of what he said, but in other words, but zooming in on the Baltic region. So um, Ukraine it is my, so immediately to answer the question that is being posed in the seminar, Ukraine is not decisive. It is just one big piece of the puzzle. So let us let us get there step by step. So indeed, the loss of interest in 16 plus one and Belt and Road later, I'm going to touch on Belt and Road as well, um, it was, um, is it, th th there was this nail in the coffin view that Jeremy outlined, right? So it's one by one. And the first issue, of course, was the fact that there were no deliberals. And I think that maybe some colleagues favor the value argument, others favor the political argument. Then there are other colleagues who favor the Washington argument, the security argument. I believe that everybody was ready to shut their eyes here when they were being addressed as Eastern Europe, even though, as Jeremy well knows, the same thing that he pointed out with uh, Czech uh, stressing we're Central Europe, same thing as with us, but we also say we're, we're, no we're always say we're Northern Europe, right? But for that moment, out of pragmatic reasons, Everybody was ready to let that slide. Uh, so I think that the fact that the format, despite huge political will, has not delivered is the biggest nail in its coffin. Um, now, what led to this? Um, and I take Jeremy's point that he calls it cooperation with Chinese uh, characteristics. But basically, it is also the fact that South-South logic, the formats that you, Nargis, also described, South-South logic was imposed on 16 plus one. But what the Baltic expected was China, what, what the Western Europe had. Hearing of these stories, how everybody had gotten rich off of trading with China, 
how our um, how our transportation sector can get revitalized by uh, servicing Chinese goods flowing towards Western Europe. Uh, secondly, how our exports will be welcomed to China, because why not? Because you have uh, Danone yogurt, yogurt uh, as, as this primary uh, um, uh, advertising stunt that has been imposed on the Chinese, right? So why not our yogurt? Um, then, so that's the second. And the third, of course, FDI, something Jeremy also touched upon. Now the high-tech investment is going to come. Our excellent uh, workforce uh, that is not really expensive uh, due to our, um, our, our economy is going to be put to use, but, but very, very highly educated, right? Uh, but um, none of that really worked out because what China imposed was the 16 plus, was the South-South logic instead. Why don't we give you loans and you build roads in a nutshell? <laughs> And that's not what we wanted. In another aspect, I, I apologize for my voice. I've caught the, the flu. Uh, we've been, it's almost ironic how we've been all looking out for COVID and we end up with flu. So uh, yeah, just, just a side note. Um, so um, um, in, in this model that the Baltics wanted to pursue with China, be it in 16 plus one or Belt and Road, did not entail any shifts in loyalties. That is why the socialist friendship argument indeed was twice as true for the Baltics. When China came up with that first, uh, everybody was shocked. But at the same time, China later adapted it, especially during the BRI phase starting from 2016. Um, China became sensitive to the issue and they started shaping their narrative, at least here, around three or even four regions of Central and Eastern Europe, as they called it. The Baltic states are special. The Visegrad region is special. Then you have the Balkan states that are EU member states, and then you have the candidate states in the Balkans. So that China got kind of got the hint, right? And still nothing. Uh, but the, the, the values aspect wasn't there because it was never a strategic choice for the Baltics. It was not, we were not looking for adding more pillars to our foreign policy because our foreign policy basically has the one pillar, the security pillar, the U.S., and the, the engulfing family, uh, everything else pillar, um, God help us that it doesn't become the security pillar as well, the EU, right? So there was no, that we, we weren't looking for any more pillars, whereas China was kind of hoping that we would. Um, now, um, and all of that is true Plus, for Belt and Road, there's another factor that Arsenyi is going to be talking about, I think. That's the Belarus factor. Because all of the promise of Chinese um, involvement in the Baltic region hinged upon one specific project, hinged upon the Great Stone uh, by Minsk. And after the, after the 2028 uh, August uh, elections and the, the, the demonstrations, um, the Baltic states took a very harsh stance vis-a-vis uh, uh, Lukashenko. So no cooperation was coming through Belarus. And even before that, de facto, there was nothing, not very much uh, to uh, s uh, speak on behalf of it. Uh, now, let's move to our era. Um, I have colleagues who have pointed out in their publications that COVID was a factor across all of Europe, right? That it really damaged China's reputation, China's soft power, you, you, whatever way you decide to call it, including Central East Europe. But I have to say that here, the Latvian case has actually been an outlier. We did, a, we did research it as part of a bigger consortium, and we discovered that probably because the Chinese involvement, the official Chinese involvement in, in the country had been so low-key, 
no loud statements, no wolf warriors, very much like just culture-oriented Xinhua reposts, there was no major uh, outlash towards China. Uh, so in fact, the Latvian public opinion was uh, the highest one of China during, the, during COVID was the highest one among all EU member states that were surveyed. But of course, that changed. And that's what I want to say that Ukraine matters because basically what it does, more of the same. Um, it brings out the Chinese position on not wanting to condemn uh, uh, either Russia. So that's a nat- naturally sensitive topic in the Baltics. Um, so the answer to the, the name of, the, of today's seminar is negatively negatively, but how far? Um, And I think China has become very apprehensive of this and the delegation that Jeremy uh, also pointed out, uh, he had a visit from, uh, that's also been reported in the Global Times and and the the name is very telling and it says, veteran Chinese envoy head CEC visit to clarify misunderstanding over Ukraine. So it means that China is perceptive towards what Ukraine has done uh, for China and Central East Europe, including China and the Baltics. Of course, uh, uh, Lithuania is not on the list. We can all guess why Lithuania is not included in this in this um, in this program. But still, Latvia is. Um, but again, there's little room uh, for the rekindling in, in the current uh, in the current um, uh, format uh, because these issues go, like I said, beyond Ukraine. And because going back to my initial argument. Even when the weather was fair, the relationship was great. There was a lot of optimism. Nothing really happened. So no deliverables. Hence, no interdependence. We just published yesterday with the European Think Tank Network on China uh, a report which is based on country-level analysis, which looks at the interdependencies our countries have with China. And of course, the Latvian chapter is none, practically. Uh, So... um, I, I that's that's where I that's where I'm going to stop. Uh, but I want to make um, one uh, observation because I think I've been using the word 16 plus one in Belton Road quite freely. I've been dropping them uh, without uh, the, the 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 conceptual framing that this format would require, probably. Uh, in fact, and that has been um, uh, on purpose, because starting from uh, 2016, the Chinese official messaging in the Baltics has been replacing 16 plus one with Belt and Road, adding 16 plus one as one of the aspects of the Belt and Road cooperation, kind of going under and saying, you are this, this, this has been the initial uh, launch pad of, of Belt and Road. And this is also where China used the argument saying that this is not a South-South approach because we have Western partners on board of Belt and Road, um, meaning Italy um, and Greece, I guess. So, um, that's the that that's how these two uh, concepts became uh, muddied muddied in the discourse. Thank you. Thank you very much, Una, um, and double appreciation for doing it. You know, in your condition, um, Arseni, uh, let's let's go to you. It seems there were deliverables for for Belarus. Um, Una mentioned the Great Stone Industrial Park. There were loans. Uh, there were all kinds of agreements, and then the railway connection, of course, goes through uh, Belarus. How does it look from from Minsk? Yeah, thank you, Nargis, <clears throat> for the invitation. Sorry, I also have <laughs> catched a cold, uh, so. <clears throat> 
yeah, I would like to start uh, from the point that actually we need to discuss at least three crises that affected China's engagement uh, with Belarus and broader in the Eastern uh, European region. Uh, the first crisis uh, actually started uh, in 2014 when Russia decided to uh, commit uh, aggression against Ukraine, annexing um, uh, Crimea, as well as destabilizing uh, Donbass. And uh, these steps already affected uh, China's plans to promote the Belt and Road Initiative in the Eastern Europe. Uh, initially, Ukraine uh, had been considered as a key element within the Belt and Road Initiative in the Eastern Europe. Uh, China was planning to invest at least uh, 10-15 billion uh, dollars in the in infrastructure projects in Crimea, especially uh, building uh, an industrial park as well as a deep sea port. But the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula by the Russian uh, Federation actually uh, uh, spoiled these plans. Uh, but that is how, uh, one year after, the head of China, Xi Jinping, appeared in Belarus. In May 2015, uh, he paid uh, a state visit uh, to our country and proclaimed that Belarus uh, would become the key element within the Belt and Road Initiative in the Eastern Europe. Uh, thus, actually, Belarus substituted Ukraine in the Chinese strategic planning uh, with regards to this initiative uh, due to the high level of political military risks associated with uh, Russia-Ukraine confrontation. While Belarus uh, that time al already managed to distance uh, from this war, uh, to keep a neutral position, but also a very important moment, uh, our country started normalization process with the EU and the United States. Uh, the Western countries began uh, lifting sanctions, and this also uh, facilitated cooperation with, uh, with China. Uh, and by the way, the uh, Great Stone Industrial Park that actually dates back in 2010 uh, and was frozen also due to the uh, Western sanctions uh, against Belarus between 2011 and 2014 was reactivated immediately after the Xi Jinping's visit uh, in Belarus in 2015. The deal between Minsk uh, and Beijing was the following. <clears throat> uh, uh, President Lukashenko promised uh, China to uh, do all the best in order to provide Chinese companies investing in Belarus with uh, access to the European market. Uh, while China was interested in investing 
uh, in uh, Belarus uh, and to uh, facilitate closer relations between uh, Belarus and the European Union. And starting from the 2015, a group of Chinese experts uh, started to produce recommendations for the Belarusian government how to reform the Belarusian economy and diversify its uh, foreign economic ties. And according to these recommendations, uh, Belarus uh, was supposed to access the WTO and to sign a special economic agreement with the European Union by 2020. Also, the Belarusian authorities provided the industrial park with a special uh, tax preferential regime. Uh, and uh, everything stopped with uh, the second crisis. Uh, Una has mentioned already it. I mean, the domestic political crisis in Belarus after the August 2020 presidential elections that triggered unprecedented wave of uh, sanctions uh, against Belarus from the West, including the sectoral economic sanctions. And um, I believe that at this point, China uh, became quite disappointed uh, with its Belarusian counterpart. And when the Belarusian leadership started to escalate the tensions uh, in relations with the West, it seemed that uh, China had to reconsider uh, another options. And uh, my feeling is that uh, China returned back to the initial plans to work uh, with Ukraine. Uh, since the political-military situ situation uh, that time became more or less stable, comparing to the 2014-2015 uh, period. Uh, also, the association agreement and free trade agreement between Ukraine and uh, the European Union became uh, into force uh, since 2017. Uh, immediately, the negotiations about the free trade zone between Ukraine and China uh, were reactivated. Uh, in June 2021, uh, uh, Chinese and Ukrainian governments uh, signed uh, an infrastructure and joint uh, project agreements. By the way, a, a roadmap uh, of this joint projects uh, was designed by Chinese uh, experts already in 2014-2015. Um, and it amounted about 60 uh, infrastructure projects with, uh, I guess, $15, $20 billion uh, investments. Um, so, uh, the political crisis in Belarus actually uh, led China to reconsider uh, the future prospects of the Belt and Road Initiative in the region. 
the Western sanctions uh, against Belarus uh, transformed our country in a quite toxic partner for uh, China. And uh, uh, as I have said, it seems that uh, Chinese leadership uh, was quite disappointed uh, by the behavior of the Belarusian leadership. And uh, the fact that uh, Alexander Lukashenko was not invited uh, to the Winter Olympic Games in Beijing uh, manifests this. Uh, and finally, the third crisis, uh, actually the continuation or the, the escalation of war between uh, Ukraine and Russia, and unfortunately the engagement of uh, Belarus in this war on the uh, Russia side, uh, has made... Uh, Belarus uh, completely irrelevant partner for uh, promoting the Belt and Road Initiative. Actually, China uh, has joined some uh, Western sanction regimes against Belarus because uh, the official explanation that they are afraid of uh, secondary sanctions against Chinese companies. But frankly speaking, it's a speculation because none of the sanctioned regimes uh, envisage secondary sanctions yet. But nevertheless, it seems that China is hedging the risks. uh, And for instance, the uh, Chinese companies have already excluded uh, Belarus from their uh, transit uh, logistic corridor, uh, China-Europe. Uh, car producer Geely stopped production uh, in Belarus, as well as the uh, Huawei is rejecting uh, to supply Belarus with 5G equipment. The Asian Infrastructure uh, Investment Bank stopped uh, financing all projects in Belarus. So it's also a demonstration that I think China is quite irritated uh, by the behavior of our country. Uh, especially in the context of this uh, security crisis. Both actions of Russia and Belarus undermine China's plans to promote the Belt and Road Initiative in the region. Uh, And if I may, I could also speak about some... uh, mid-term and long-term implications, how I can see it from Belarus. Uh, First of all, uh, I can uh, describe China's position as a strategic patience. Uh, I would like to recall the model of behavior of China in 2014, when Russia spoiled its plans in Ukraine. It took one year for uh, Beijing to decide uh, how to to act in this new environment. And only after that, uh, Xi Jinping arrived in Belarus. So it took only one year. Uh, uh, 
uh, then I, I expect that the, the current environment, uh, China will be paying more attention to the so-called Southern Corridor that is going through the Central Asian states, Caspian Sea, uh, Caucasus. Plus, uh, I expect that uh, China will intensify its relations with Turkey and probably Turkey may become uh, a new bridge connecting China and Europe in this new geopolitical environment. Uh, these uh, strategic implications uh, of uh, the Russia-Ukraine war, uh, I believe, will be uh, a new round of uh, post-Soviet space disintegration. And uh, frankly speaking, I expect that China will definitely try to benefit from this uh, disintegration, increasing its influence both in the Central Asian region, uh, but also in the Eastern Europe, uh, where China is trying to secure its position uh, already now in the post-conflict environment. As far as I know, Kyiv and Beijing are uh, holding a sort of consultations because Ukraine is considering China as uh, one of the security donors uh, in future. And um, the deal is about uh, how China could contribute to the reconstruction, reconstruction and restoration of Ukraine uh, after the war. And it is also one of the elements of this strategic patience strategy from which China could benefit. Uh, and uh, uh, since uh, the disintegration of the post-Soviet space will be accompanied by uh, increasing competition between uh, China and Russia, I think the relations between two countries will be uh, less uh, politically polite, I would say. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm with you on the disintegration of the post-Soviet space. Um, James, can I, can I pass the baton to you? Yeah, we've had. Uh, thank you all for your for your excellent points. We've had some questions coming in from the audience, and um, for those of you on the call, feel free to put your questions in the Q and A, and we'll try and get to as many as we can. And um, the first question is for uh, Dr. Zhang, which is um, sort of invoking uh, George Medelsky's idea of the long cycle theory. Um, but the sort of heart of the question is whether or not China sees what's happening in Ukraine as an opportunity to sort of assert itself as a new global leader. You know, that is, as Arsenio was just saying, that if China and Russia tensions are sort of going to become more frictious, and if China, if Russia's position in the in the world order is going to decline, does this open up a new space that the Chinese leadership can sort of see for, for Chinese leadership um, in a sort of new post-Ukraine era? Um, and then there are sort of two semi-related questions Questions. One plays on what Arsenio was just saying to do with the, the pivot away from the land, the Eurasian land bridge, and to the viability of other options. Um, that is through Turkey. Uh, we'll maybe see sort of like a, a renewed focus on the sea routes that have sort of 
traditionally played one half of the Belt Road Initiative. Um, are there really viable routes that sort of don't have to pass through Russia that China might rely on? Uh, and then the flip side of that question is if we're going to see a reduction in trade between, you know, sort of the the, the West and, and China through, through Russia and these blocks, is that going to risk uh, economic disruption, high inflation? Um, we've seen that as a sort of key issue in the French election that just happened um, that sort of fuels uh, some of the, the Front National, the far right discourse in France. Um, is that going to become more of a risk uh, within Western Europe? Um, and so to start with, let's go to, to Dr. Zhang about the, uh, the, the prospects for China's leadership. Right. Okay. Thanks. Well, I think, um, as I mentioned, I think it's yet to understand about what precisely might be the implication of it. Obviously, some people are saying that this offers what the crisis might potentially offers a windows of opportunity for China. And the most importantly for China is that the U.S. is giving considerable pressure on China strategically. Um, and the what Russia is doing has been distracting Washington from doing what it's doing and then taking a lot of you know a burden of, of this strategic pressure from China. So from that point of view, some Chinese strategic analysts do did say that well this might offer a new opportunity for China to play. But what I have seen here and hearing from what other panelists have been saying is indeed the opposite kind of answer. And seems to me that the world has very high, or probably I shouldn't say the world, Europe have very high expectation of the world, what China can do and what China should do. But what China choose to do now at the moment is being restricted by a lot of factors, as mentioned, domestic consensus, a lot of things, and also its own capacity. Right. I think other panelists talk about how China do not understand the other region. And that's that's a common kind of convention. That's uh, what China understands it's very well. So in China, we see the Chinese university think tank. China has been frequently saying that in order to better develop and run the chief, we need to have regional expertise. We need to have people who understand the region. And we don't do have that. I often meet some Chinese scholars who work on Latin America. And there's a reason as they work on now Latin America, because the government asked them to do that. They were previously working on Russia or on other matters, and then you assign them to work on Latin America strategically, so they now work on Latin America. They have never been to Latin America, only been there once, and do not speak the local language. And that's the situation China is facing. We have to bear in mind the rise of China is a recent phenomenon. China is learning how to become a global leader. China is yet to develop its understanding about the region, about the Middle East, about uh, uh, Russia, about uh, sorry, about Middle East, about Europe. So it's 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 very un understandable why China do not have very sophisticated understanding of those matters. And now suddenly the world or the Europe is asking the U.S. asking China to make a a, a stance on this matter. Uh, and I don't think China clearly understand the situation. They do not have the expertise. And yet, what China can offer. Um, to solve the situation, um, I think uh, there's very limited what China can do. So China choose a natural position as many developing countries did, like um, India, uh, Brazil, South Africa. They none of them really be coming out looking at their record of in the UN and other places. They do not come out to condemn Russia as the West did. So the position China, I, I do say there is a gap between developed country and developing country on this matter. And China is simply choosing an old way, which is a developing country way. This is something that we don't really understand or we want to get too much involved. We want to keep independently or non-alliance uh, kind of approach just to do that. It's okay for other countries to do it, like India, Brazil. But now it seems not so okay for China to do it because the world is, or Europe is expecting China to be a global leader. But what China 
choose to do is we don't want to take that leadership. Um, we we want peace asset, but what else we can do uh, is not clear. Um, and I think there are reasons for that. And there is clearly a, a expect a expectation gap for why China cannot uh, become the leader from this this window of opportunity. Great. And uh, I mean, on the question of alternate routes, we uh, thankfully on the panel have an expert on the China-Pakistan corridor who has just published a, a book on this, uh, Dr. Garlick. I mean, does Pakistan present one potential avenue for a, a sort of un- non-Russian alternate for, for trade? Um, okay, I'm going to have to be <laughs> negative again. I, I want to make clear that, you know, I saw one comment in, in the questions, which I'm not sure if it's... Uh, not being sarcastic, I don't know, but uh, I'm not. I'm not anti Belt and Road. It, you know, I started from a position that I was, you know, thought the Belt and Road was a great idea for for you know into you know much needed infrastructure integration across Asia and Europe. It's really much needed, and I was very optimistic about it. But just I'm presenting what I'm presenting is the reality on the ground of what what's happening. And if you mention Pakistan, yeah, the China Pakistan Economic Corridor. Uh, which was, again, presented with great expectations. It's going to be a game changer, right? This, this phrase is going to be a game changer. It's very, again, great currency in Pakistan. But the, the, the reality is that it's uh, that's not a viable alternative route. I mean, you know, I've looked at the, 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 the uh, you know, what, what's happening on the ground and there is only the, the connection between China and Pakistan is the Karakoram Highway, and that's that was built in the 1970s, completed in the 1970s. They've reconstructed it and they've improved it, but then that's the only connection. There's one, literally one road going across four and a half thousand meter high mountains, which are closed due to snow for four months in the winter. So this idea that Pakistan can be a connectivity corridor from China, you know, through the Belt and Road is is just uh, a myth. Basically, it's not it's not happening. The only connectivity they've added is a fiber optic cable, which runs from China down through Pakistan. I believe runs to Africa. But in terms of connect infrastructure, connectivity, and transport is uh, that and and given you know as we see Pakistan's current instability, political instability with. Um, I just saw in the news today that, you know, for example, uh, in, unfortunately, very tragically in Karachi, three uh, Chinese employees of the Confucius Institute were blown up in a suicide bombing by Baluchi, you know, uh, Baluchi Liberation Army. So we, amidst this kind of instability, you know, Pakistan is not an alternative route. No, I, I would uh, answer absolutely in the negative. Um, how about the um, the Transcaspian uh, Transcaspian route, uh, the, which was actually the, the if we remember the maps, uh, the maps of the BRI, the initial maps, they were not going through China, through Russia, right? Uh, that these were the more kind of southern bypassing uh, bypassing Russia routes. Does the panel have uh, an opinion on that? And then we don't know what's going to happen to Russia, in, you know, in the future. <laughs> Just a quick two fingers on my side that, you know, going back, that's something that probably Nargis, you know better about, because I think Kazakhstan immediately after the beginning of Russia's invasion into Ukraine, war in Ukraine, tried to reorient some of the, was it oil through the Caspian route? So probably you're asking this question, but you know better than us. Only oil, but yes, Uh yes, there's definitely. So what's the take? 
Um, the, the, uh, it has its complications. Definitely now we're seeing the push, yeah, uh, because we do need corridors and China needs corridors, um, uh, but it's also not an easy area to go through, right? Uh, so you need to, well, go through the Caucasus and, you know, there are some issues there. And yeah, so it's, it's, it's not easy. And that's actually uh, the question I have in my mind, how, how China sees this kind of, um, uh, these connectivity plans in the light of the kind of, uh, in the light of the current and potential conflicts, uh, you know, throughout, throughout the regions, um, but but anyways, Una, I have a question for you, actually, um, from Dr. Balmaceda, um, who is curious about how the very public conflict between uh, China and Lithuania concerning the issue of a Taiwan diplomatic office in Vilnius uh, synergizes with this situation. And she understands that some of the China's uh, responses went above and beyond Lithuania, also affecting other Lithuania factory supplies and customers. Could you could you address? Yes, uh, uh, certainly. The Lithuanian case uh, was a, 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 a turn towards uh, a Lithuanian. It was dictated by uh, several domestic developments in Lithuania, uh, with a new government, a more value-oriented one, and plus uh, against the backdrop of. Um, an anti-authoritarian, that's how, that, that's how it was phrased, kind of a policy. It wasn't just China specific, it was, you know, Russia, Belarus, of course, because it's a country that Lithuania has, uh, shares a lot of history with and is very, knows it very well. And also China, and there were some, from the public, uh, from the public, from the society, there were some, there was support towards, for example, the Hong Kong uh, um, freedom uh, freedom way, uh, and the what what that's why when I was speaking before I said that the Latvian opinion just a quick side note the Latvian opinion during COVID had not really uh, worsened of China right uh, that's what leads me to believe that the Chinese public diplomacy is better when it's not existent and and Chinese diplom and, and Chinese messaging in a country because in Lithuania the embassy actually tried to. Um, challenge these demonstrations, create counter demonstrations, and uh, uh, also came up with some very fiery rhetoric. And of course, uh, uh, Lithuanians do not take these kinds of things lying down. Um, and so the whole debate over uh, withdrawal, or rather just not showing up at 17 plus one anymore, stemmed from, 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 a, from a, um, a combination of these factors. Um, uh, but of course, uh, I think Lithuania, and, and of course, there was for, for for a second there there was a feeling that maybe this will be a start of of a, of a wider policy kind of a two step policy first withdraw from China's uh, multilateral formats in Europe and second start looking towards Taiwan and what can be done with Taiwan but that did not create the traction that Lithuania had expected um, other countries did not follow although I have to say it did cause an interesting development because in Lithuania's shadow other countries started expanding their cooperation with Taiwan without going quite as far and loud as Vilnius so Vilnius was taking the heat from mainland China from the People's Republic and while other countries were also looking what can be done um, with the island uh, but what I, your question was how how is this issue synergizing with this situation and I'm, I'm um, I think um, uh, of course, the, the Lithuanians did not expect um, the secondary dependency. 
I think the Lithuanians uh, had uh, had counted, factored in um, hybrid threats, had factored in uh, uh, attacks, non non uh, non attribution attacks uh, on their um, uh, internet infrastructure, but they had not planned this because they relied on European partners. But at the end of the day, what happened is that this whole situation turned the needle because Brussels had to take a stand finally, um, for better or for worse. I, I don't know. It's, it depends on, on how you look at it. But uh, Brussels had to, it wasn't ambiguous to use the word that uh, colleagues have been using today vis-a-vis China. It wasn't ambiguous anymore. Um, and uh, But that, of course, and, and the, the situation in Ukraine, Lithuania views it, the, the hardliners, of course, view it as See, we were right in the first place. I hope I answered your question. Thank you very much. And Arseni has a raised hand. Arseni, you have intervention. Uh, thank you, Nargis. Uh, about the alternative routes, uh, just a few days ago, China started to test a new uh, transit corridor, multimodal. Uh, transit corridor bypassing Belarus and Russia. It connects Sian and uh, uh, Mangame uh, in Germany. And it goes through the Kazakhstan, Caspian Sea, then Azerbaijan, uh, Georgia, then uh, Romania, Hungary, uh, etc. So uh, it, it it is one of the indications that China has to adapt to this new security environment. But because uh, the Black Sea is a weak point in this transportation route, I expect that maybe China will need to shift its focus uh, to Turkey as a land bridge. Uh, between China and uh, Europe in future, um, especially because uh, uh, Turkey is also interested in getting uh, some investments from from China now due to the uh, quite not stable economic situation, as well as Azerbaijan and Turkey are going to reconstruct uh, Nagorno Karabakh, and China could also play a role uh, in this project. So, uh, at least from the logistical point of view, uh, China is actively adapting to this new security environment. Uh, so, I expect that they will increase the their activities. By the end of the, the year, when Xi Jinping solves the major uh, domestic political issues. Uh, so, so you're saying they kind of, and I think everybody's saying that the kind of the idea of having Eastern Europe as a bridge is not having the best times, right? I think at this moment, uh, Due to the high level of political military risks, uh, it's not the appropriate idea. Uh, but in mid-term perspective, uh, in the post-conflict environment, I think China could play quite a significant role, especially 
if China becomes a security provider uh, for Ukraine in the future, at least as I have said, Kyiv uh, is hosting such uh, consultations now with uh, Chinese counterparts and uh, the uh, Ukraine's president uh, office is preparing uh, a conversation between two leaders. Uh, so they are preparing some conceptual frameworks, uh, but it, it is also about uh, Belarus uh, in the post-conflict environment, because frankly speaking, I don't see uh, for Russia any chances to win this war uh, by military means. Uh, and it leads to my second point uh, that the defeat of Russia in this war will lead to a new phase of the disintegration of post-Soviet space, meaning that probably Ukraine and Belarus could benefit from this uh, disintegration by reorienting some uh, economic ties from Russia to the European Union. And uh, this is uh, the most uh, beneficial uh, status of Belarus and uh, uh, Ukraine for China. Because uh, as I have said, the initial idea was uh, to integrate Belarus deeper in the European market to invest in the uh, uh, Great Stone Industrial Park uh, and to sell goods and services uh, enjoying the uh, tax preferential regime uh, for Chinese companies, but also the lack of trade barriers between Belarus and uh, the European Union. Um, the problem is that the Belarusian leadership didn't manage to comply with these expectations. Uh, Ukraine is promised either to uh, get the full uh, EU membership uh, after the conflict or at least uh, a sort of a profound uh, integration form. Uh, which will also uh, facilitate uh, more interest from China to use Ukraine as a bridge, economic bridge, uh, to expand its economic interests in Europe. So uh, I would say that in, in the current environment, it's not the relevant option for, for China, but as the political military situation uh, starts to stabilize, uh, I think China will definitely use this opportunity to secure its interests, both in Belarus and Ukraine. Thank you very much, Arseny. James, you had a question? Yeah, just... Uh... Arseny uh, and Una both made very interesting points about uh, sort of 
how China is very quick to adapt. And I'm thinking of Kelly Sai's recent work here on uh, adaptive authoritarianism or sort of authoritarianism plus adjective, you know, adaptive, responsive. Um, and one view would be that China is being very sort of good at responding to new developments in Belarus and Lithuania. Um, another view of that would be to say that China is being very fickle with its partners, it's being very sort of quick to drop uh, partners like Belarus who have previously proven quite loyal to China. Belarus is often uh, a country that puts forward pro-Chinese views at, say, the United Nations General Assembly, the UN Human Rights Commission. Um, and so for China to sort of turn around and sort of not invite Lukashenko to the Winter Olympics or to uh, decide to throw its relations with Lithuania away um, over, over quite a short period of time, um, does this show that China is sort of quite ready to drop countries that were otherwise in line with it? And if so, does that sort of send a signal to other countries who might be sort of slightly more concerned about closer ties with China? I guess this is a question for the whole panel, but Arseni, would you like to, to start us off maybe? Um, yeah, yeah, thank you for this question. Uh, according to my opinion, uh, I believe that the main uh, reason why China uh, has withdrawn its attention from Belarus and is reluctant to support uh, the Belarusian leadership uh, is because the Belarusian leadership is not following the initial agreements concluded personally in 2015 with the head of China, Xi Jinping. Uh, they were, uh, these agreements were concluded not only uh, rhetorically in words, but then they were fixed uh, in uh, some uh, joint strategic concepts, uh, for instance, including the plan of joint development of the Republic of Belarus and the People's Republic of China until 2020, based on the conjunction of strategic programs of the two countries in medium and long term. And uh, such strategic concepts uh, envisaged quite ambitious agenda, uh, but uh, all they usually focus uh, on how Belarus would facilitate China's trade with Europe. So meaning that uh, Belarus had to find uh, a special model of uh, economic integration with the European Union from which China could benefit. Uh, in response, China was ready to enlarge uh, its investments uh, in our country uh, by providing us also with the high tech uh, uh, establishing joint enterprises because uh, actually China was ready to um, shift to another model of economic cooperation uh, from simple provision of loans to uh, establishing joint uh, companies. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, I think the strategic uh, mistake of the Belarusian side was that they simply didn't understand the uh, Chinese strategic intentions. Uh, 
they simply um, so they simply didn't uh, do anything in order to support the Chinese uh, agenda in the Eastern Europe within the Belt and Road Initiative. What is more important, actually, they uh, made uh, a lot of uh, problems for China, uh, spoiling its plans. So uh, I would say that it's quite... uh, normal that when your counterpart doesn't meet the terms and conditions of the agreements, then you withdraw from it. Thank you. Thank you, Arseni. And um, well, we need to wrap up soon. Actually, we need to wrap up. Like, let's let's give, uh, give ourselves five more minutes. But I wanted to um, ask also the rest of the panel. Arseni took us into the future. Um, and made some predictions. I was wondering if uh, other panelists can make uh, can make one or two predictions about the future, how they see the situation developing. Um, uh, and we're speaking about China and Eastern Eastern Europe, like Eastern Europe, kind of <laughs> in a broad sense. Um, uh, what's going to happen within the next five or, or, or ten years? I understand now it's you know we're in the fog of war situation, but. Uh, what you would expect or maybe what factors you think are really, really important and they would be shaping China's approach uh, toward the region. So uh, maybe we can uh, go in the other direction. Una, can we go to you and then we go to Jeremy and then to Gina? Sure. Yeah. Uh, I actually admire uh, Arsenio's approach where he's really very clear on the implications. But of course, the big, um, the big question is, when and how is the war going to end? Because uh, uh, that is that is what we base our, our projections on, right? After the fog of war clears, after the war ends. But I think also how it ends and what happens uh, and how China is being perceived as a result of this will make or break China's case in the Baltic states. Um, it will not be um, uh, anything that has security or dual use implications. We will not be seeing Huawei to, um, you know, setting up national networks. However, uh, in, you know, in the most positive scenario, or well, I mean, can we even speak of anything positive now? But, you know, in a comparatively more positive scenario, um, uh, some uh, private uh, companies or that, that do not necessarily deal with these risky... So basically, on the same level as elsewhere... Uh, throughout the EU, maybe something will also uh, come out of this here. I'm, I do not really believe that we're going to see a lot of uh, transit uh, coming through. So I think that dream has, that ship has sailed. Uh, so some kind of a bilateral format might work. And of course, it's going to be industry or business to business driven rather than this political will driven. Which might be better in the end. Um, Jeremy, can we go to you for some predictions? Uh, yeah, I know it's very d- dangerous to make predictions, you know, because they, they're usually wrong. But uh, I don't have a crystal ball. But uh, I would agree with what what Una just said. I, I pretty much agree with that. I think there needs to be a, a, a rethink from the Chinese side about how they approach the region, how they're going to promote uh, better relations. I, I, as she said, I think the the idea of this land bridge. I mean, to be honest, I think that that idea kind of died quite a long time ago, right? Even before this war. I mean, that's just not really 
happening. I mean, the rail route, um, the, the, the freight on the rail route was always problematic. I mean, there was more freight coming from China, nothing going back, you know, so it wasn't worked out like how that was going to be profitable or how that was going to be better than the the maritime route uh, but anyway you know there needs to be just a rethink from the chinese side there needs to be some kind of a more nuanced approach to 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 europe and to central and eastern europe and 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 avoidance of this kind of you know i think you know for i mean the czech republic czechs would are very sensitive to this idea that they would be lumped into the global south you know as we've heard you know that central eastern europe is part of the global i mean people here just don't see themselves that way there needs to be a more nuanced approach from the chinese side and i think what i'd agree with una it needs to focus on business and avoid the the politics that that's crept into it thank you actually uh in central asia our hopes were rekindled during the um, during the pandemic, the volumes went up actually because of the disruptions um, with the mar- maritime pride. Um, Jinhan, can we go to you? What's your yeah, I, I, I thank you. Um, I agree. I think China should have more nuanced approach towards Eastern Europe. And I think I am less worried. I mean, if I'm Chinese leader, I would be less worried about <clears throat> the long-term run implication of BRI in the region. I mean, in the short term, obviously, the connectivity has been affected, but imagine when the war ends, regardless of what scenario, the region needs China, right? Ukraine needs Chinese investment, Russia needs Chinese investment, they need China came here to do something. And that is not going to be changed um, five years later, 10 years later, that cannot be done by Washington or by EU. So China will be needed. Um, if China continue to keep its neutral position on war. Um, so in the, long, in the short term, I think the BRI is being affected significantly, but in the longer run, I think we do need Chinese investment. Um, but what I'm really worrying about is domestically uh, about Chinese economy and uh, what China can do in the future. I mean, currently China is facing considerable problems domestically um, in COVID and COVID has been uh, hit Chinese economy in many ways. So what I am thinking is instead of how this war has been affecting China's attention in um, BRI or in Europe, I'm thinking about how China's domestic economy five or 10 years later is being affecting you know, China's geopolitical goals uh, in the region. Um, because in the past few years, even before the pandemic, there are a lot of domestic discussion within China are seeing whether BRI is a, a strategic uh, overstretch for China. After the pandemic, a lot of BRI discussion, Bay on Road discussion in China has been focusing on health, Silk Road, digital Silk Road. And so I'm not sure whether the interest of China on the region will be the same um, after the war. And much of that it depends on whether Chinese economy can continue to grow, whether Chinese economy is doing well. If it's doing well, obviously everything will come back. But if it's not, then China probably have to prioritize its, its other priorities. Um, thank you so much. It's a really excellent point to uh, to end our discussion with. Uh, let me thank our wonderful uh, our wonderful speakers for your uh, very informative and uh, insightful uh, remarks. Uh, I want to thank uh, our audiences who joined us here in the webinar and also on YouTube. Uh, and I want to uh, thank our um, uh, co-sponsor, Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute, and of course, uh, Fairbank Center and the Davis, uh, Davis Center, and at the Davis Center 
uh, team, Chris Martin and uh, Laura Sargent, uh, who made this uh, made this possible. And of course, my partner, uh, James Evans. Um, so, and please tune in to our future events. Thanks, everybody.